welcome to this episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting, a podcast where your hosts Scott Ahern and Chad Knight discuss a topic using research and personal opinion. The topics will be wide and varied, but approached with the researcher's eye. Will everything we say be 100% accurate? Probably not, but we are striving to be as accurate as we can be. Every month on the 1st, a new topic will come your way. Occasionally, though not usually, there may be some language of the adult variety. Listener, be warned. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Chad. Hello, and welcome to Want to Hear Something Interesting? Episode 6. Who Signed the Declaration of Independence? This being July 2017, Scott and I decided it would be fitting to talk about the signers of the Declaration of Independence, those men who committed treason to give us the country we have today. We are only going to talk specifically about a couple of them, each of us We are only going to talk specifically about a couple of them each of us has chosen, but I'm going to open the show by listing each signer by the state they represented at the time. But first, a bit of history. The Declaration of Independence wasn't signed on July 4, 1776. On July 1, 1776, the Second Continental Congress met in Philadelphia, and on the following day, 12 of the 13 colonies voted in favor of Richard Henry Lee's motion for independence. The delegates then spent the next two days debating and revising the language of a statement drafted by Thomas Jefferson. On July 4th, Congress officially adopted the Declaration of Independence, and as a result, the date is celebrated as Independence Day. Nearly a month would go by, however, before the actual signing of the document took place. First, New York's delegates didn't officially give their support until July 9th because their home assembly hadn't yet authorized them to vote in favor of independence. Next, it took two weeks for the Declaration to be engrossed, written on parchment in a clear hand. Most of the delegates signed on August 2nd, but several, Elbridge Gerry, Oliver Walcott, Lewis Morris, Thomas McKean, and Matthew Thornton, signed on a later date. Two others, John Dickinson and Robert R. Livingston, never signed at all. The signed parchment copy now resides at the National Archives in the Rotunda for the Charters of Freedom, alongside the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. With that in mind... Here are the brave men who have signed this document. From Delaware, George Reed, Caesar Rodney, Thomas McKean. From Pennsylvania, George Clymer, Benjamin Franklin, Robert Morris, John Morton, Benjamin Rush, George Ross, James Smith, James Wilson, George Taylor. From Massachusetts, John Adams, Samuel Adams, John Hancock, Robert Treat Payne, and Elbridge Gerry. From New Hampshire, Josiah Bartlett, William Whipple, and Matthew Thornton. From Rhode Island, Stephen Hopkins and William Ellery. From New York, Louis Norris, Philip Livingston, Francis Lewis, William Floyd. From Georgia, Button Gwinnett, Lyman Hall, and George Walton. From Virginia, Richard Henry Lee, Francis Lightfoot Lee, Carter Braxton, Benjamin Harris, Thomas Jefferson, George Wythe, Thomas Nelson, Jr. From North Carolina, William Hooper, John Penn, and Joseph Hughes. From South Carolina, Edward Rutledge, Arthur Middleton, Thomas Lynch, Jr., Thomas Hayward, Jr. From New Jersey, Abraham Clark, John Hart, Francis Hopkinson, Richard Stockton, John Witherspoon. From Connecticut, Samuel Huntington, Roger Sherman, William Williams, and Oliver Walcott. From Maryland, Charles Carroll, Samuel Chase, Thomas Stone, and William Packer. 
Let's remember two things. One, these men were patriots. And two, these men were also men who committed treason against their the country of England. So before we jump into this, Scott, I, I got to ask you, before we started doing this, I guess I was always under the impression that someone like George Washington would have signed this document, but he didn't. No, he didn't. Uh, in fact, only as far as I can tell, only one president was part of that, and that would be Thomas Jefferson. And John Adams. Oh, John Adams. You're right. I'm sorry. Um, I, I know there's a uh, uh, William Harrison in here, and I think he's like the father or grandfather of one of our presidents. But William he, Henry Harrison. Right. So who's the first person that you want to talk about this month? Well, I'm actually going to talk about John Adams. Okay. He was our first vice president. Correct. And you need to remember, back then, they didn't have the party ticket the way we do now. Correct. When they voted, it was whoever got the most votes was president, second most votes was vice president. Correct. And so, of course, as we all know, George Washington was the first president elected under this system. And he was reelected. Both times, John Adams was elected vice president. Okay. So he actually served as Washington's vice president both times. All right. And then he became president on his own, but he only served one term as president, which is due to really the, the work of two people. Um, one of them was his vice president and eventual successor, Thomas Jefferson who was the most influential member of what was called at the time the Republican Party, although it, its value structure bears almost no resemblance to what we now call the Republican Correct. Party. Correct, yeah. They, wasn't the name of it actually longer than just the Republican Party? Uh, probably. Most of their parties had longer names. Yeah, yeah. Um, Except but, for the Whigs. Yes. <laughs> but the other person who was largely responsible for Jefferson beating... John Adams in Adams' re-election bid was a member of Adams' own Federalist Party. Okay. Alexander Hamilton. And as we all know, there's a musical about Hamilton right now. Yes. <laughs> Although Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote and initially starred in Hamilton the musical, is no longer doing Hamilton because he is in production for Mary Poppins Returns. Okay. Now I, you know, I have I have heard most of the music from Hamilton. I don't mind the music. It's a little odd to hear forefathers rapping, you know, in my estimation. Um, and and you know, there are some issues I have with the whole production of Hamilton, which bears no no nothing on what we're doing here today. So I'm just going to kind of say that you know I do have issues with it, and I'm going to leave it at that. But um, go on with uh, with Mr. Adams here. All right. So, uh, as I've mentioned a time or two in the past, I'm from Massachusetts, from Boston. And um, as I don't remember if I mentioned, but I attended Boston Latin School for high school. Okay. Boston Latin School is the oldest public high school in continuous existence in the United States, having been founded in 1635. John Adams attended Boston Latin. Okay. As did his cousin Samuel Adams, about whom I will also be speaking later in the program. So I, I've got to ask, just because I don't I don't know why, but so it was founded in sixteen thirty five. Thirty five. Are there still parts of the original building as part of the school, or at least when you were there? 
No. Um, the original building was, um, I believe, actually, most of the original building was destroyed in the Revolutionary War. Oh, okay. So the building that I graduated from in 1988, yes, I am really that old, wasn't built until around the early 1900s. Okay. So it still had some pretty good age by the time you were there. Yes. And it showed. (laughs) (laughs) So, but anyways, John Adams, our second president, was born in October of 1735. He died on the 4th of July in 1826, not only the 50th anniversary of what we consider to be the signing of the Declaration, the 50th anniversary of the adoption of independence, but coincidentally, the exact same day that Thomas Jefferson died. Yeah, I was just looking through my notes because I'm like, that sounds familiar because I'll be talking about Thomas Jefferson next. And it's... Interesting that we should be talking about these two. Hopefully we don't repeat their pattern because Adams and Jefferson were really good friends up until Adams became president because um, John Adams was the principal drafter of the Massachusetts Constitution and he and Jefferson were two of the primary authors of the Declaration of Independence, and they were heavily involved with writing the Constitution later on. Um, In fact, um, uh, John Adams also helped write the Articles of Confederation, which preceded the Constitution. Correct. Which which was a failed experiment. (laughs) Yes. But um, most of the Founding Fathers were actually leery of too strong a central federal government which was what they were trying to get away from from England in the first place with the whole revolution. But when it came time to go into the politics of running the country, Adams and Jefferson had very different ideas how things should be done, and this led to a falling out between them. However, after Jefferson served as president and wasn't reelected, the two started corresponding again and managed to patch up their friendship and became good friends again until the time they died. Well, at least there's a happy ending there. Yes. So, um, one of the other things that a lot of people know about John Adams is that he and his son, John Quincy Adams, had the distinction of being the first father and son to both serve as president. Correct. And up until George H.W. Bush, our 41st president, and George W. Bush, our 43rd president, they were the only father and son to have served. He's also known as the father of the American Navy. When he was initially in politics, and then especially when he was vice president and president, he was very much concerned with defending the new country from foreign aggressors. Okay. And not even just the the British. In fact, the reason he gave for building up the Navy was actually France, which had been one of our staunchest allies in the revolution, but that was mainly because they wanted to stick it to the British. (laughs) And they still do today. Yes. However, as we've seen in Mexico in the 1800s, France was not above taking advantage of regional instability to try to exert some colonial and imperial control over newly formed countries. Okay. So John Adams um, 
appropriated most of the budget that he could to build ships and train sailors and have a, a good strong navy to defend the new country. Um, let's see. He was born in what was known at the time as Braintree. Um, now that area of Massachusetts is actually called Quincy, named after his son. Okay. Um, Braintree still exists, and it actually abuts the town of Quincy. But the actual place he was born would now be it would Quincy. now be inside Quincy. It's okay. City limits. Yep. And he was the first president to reside in the building designated as the Executive Mansion. Okay. What we now call the White House. Right. And it's one of those things where a lot of people don't know this, but the Capitol resided in a lot of places before Washington, D.C. Um, I believe it started in Philadelphia. Then it went to New York. Yes. Um, there's been other places, too, somewhere. I can't remember all of them. I think there was one in New Jersey. There was, you know, it moved around until they, they designated that parcel of land, which isn't technically part of the country, or not not part of the country, but not it's part not of a part state. of any state. Yeah, it's its yeah, own independent. Right. That's why we have the 50 states and the District of Columbia. Right. So, you know, it, it's kind of neat that, um, you know, you can watch history form and you can watch the way things went and how power eventually coalesced right there between the North and the South. Right. You know. Which was actually why that location was chosen. Right. Because they had to pump a lot of swamp and stuff out of there yes. to make D.C. <laughs> habitable. Right. Now, there's one other thing that most Adams historians tend to gloss over. Okay. Because at the time, it was hugely unpopular. But it does, I think, speak to his character and to his dedication to law and justice and fairness. Before becoming a politician, as most of the early politicians were, he was an attorney. Okay, yep. And in Massachusetts, during the British occupation prior to the Revolution, there was an incident referred to as the Boston Massacre. Now, in American history, it's called the Boston Massacre. In British history, it's referred to as the Incident on High Street. Okay. <laughs> Essentially, what happened was, during the occupation... A patrol of British soldiers were walking down High Street in Boston, and they were attacked by a mob. Almost all historians agree the, the mob attacked because the British were wearing their traditional uniforms of the red coats. They had their firearms. The mob attacked with rocks and um, whatever weapon, improvised right. weaponry they could get their hands on. And the soldiers opened fire, killing many of the crowd. Adams defended the soldiers in court. Correct. That I that I did know. Yes. And he won. Mm-hmm. So he he argued and the court found that his argument was valid, that it was self defense. Right, but you gotta remember too, at that point it would have been a British court though that was hearing this case. True. So it was kind and I'm not taking anything away from Adams here, but it would be kind of partial to the soldiers. True. But Adams, as an aspiring politician, definitely stuck his neck out even taking the case. Oh, yeah, especially with uh, – I'm trying to remember. Do you remember the year that the, the massacre happened? I believe it was 1773. Yeah, it, so it, it was – I mean, It was there not was... too long after the, 
the Boston Tea Party was in 73, and that was what provoked the occupation. Right. So, and, 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 you know, that was within three years of, you know, all these guys committing treason. And so he was really sticking his head out because talk amongst the American, the quote unquote American people by the time was already started about independence and freedom. You know, when you're in, you're in school, especially in grade school and stuff. And if you don't really go into American history in high school or college, they kind of put it as, you know, July 4th as somebody just went, Hey, we should be independent. And boom, it happened. Right. But it really didn't. I mean, no, it didn't. you know, we declared independence in 1776. We didn't actually gain independence until 1783. And we didn't have our first president until 1786. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of time in there that, and, and I understand why they do it for grade school kids and stuff, but that they just kind of gloss over. You know, there was a war on American soil. There were people that died. There were a lot of people that died. There were cities that were burnt to the ground. New York was burnt to the ground. Parts of Boston were burnt to the right. ground. Um, so to just look at it as a, as a single event, it's not. And and I guess I just want to kind of put that out there to the people listening because a lot of people, I mean, I spent a lot of time, I was at one point a history major in school, so I spent a lot of time reading about this kind of stuff. But if you don't, if you don't go beyond, you know, standard history class, you don't find these things out. So, anyway. All right. So, but that is what I have on former President John Adams. All right. So, the first one I'm going to talk about is uh, Thomas Jefferson, delegate from Virginia, um, third president of the United States after uh, Mr. Adams, our President Adams. More than a mere Renaissance man, Jefferson may actually have been a new kind of man. He was fluent in five languages and able to read two others. That confuses me. How can you read a language and know what it says, but you can't speak it? Actually, that's not all that uncommon. Um, when I was in school, I studied Latin and Greek. We read it. We wrote it. We never really spoke it. Because a lot of the time you would spend looking up conjugations and declensions and particular phrasing types okay. to get the meaning from it. You see, and I guess that to me, I, I can understand. It's easier for me to understand somebody can speak a language. Like there are people in America that can speak English. They can't write it, though. You know what right. I'm saying? Or read it. Right. And actually, when I taught Spanish at the technical college, I had a lot of adult native Spanish speakers who were taking my class because they never learned to write in Spanish. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, to continue on, uh, he wrote over the course of his life over 16,000 letters. He was acquainted with nearly every influential person in America and a great many in Europe as well. He was a lawyer, uh, agronomist, musician, scientist, philosopher, author, architect, inventor, and statesman. Though he never set foot outside of the American continent before his adulthood, he acquired an education that rivaled the finest to be attained in Europe. He was clearly the foremost American son of the Enlightenment. Uh, Jefferson was born in Shadwell in Albemarle County. Thank you, Virginia. On April 13, 1743, he was tutored by the Reverend James Maury, or Maury, a learned man in the finest classical tradition. He began the study of Latin, Greek, and French at the age of nine. He attended William and Mary College in Williamsburg at 16 years old, then continued his education in the law 
under George White, uh, the first professor of law in America who would later sign Jefferson's Declaration in 1776. <coughs> Thomas Jefferson attended the House of Burgess as a student in 1765 when he witnessed Patrick Henry's defiant stand against the Stamp Act. He gained the Virginia Bar and made practice in 1769 and was elected to the House of Burgesses in 1769. It was there that his involvement in revolutionary politics began. He was never a very vocal member, but his writing, his quiet working committee, and his ability to distill, distill large volumes of information to essence made him an invaluable member in any deliber deliberative body. In 1775, when a Virginia convention selected delegates to the Continental Congress, Jefferson was selected as an alternate. It was expected that Peyton Randolph, then Speaker of the Virginia House and President of the Continental Congress too, would be recalled by the royal governor. This did happen, and Jefferson went in his place. Thomas Jefferson had a theory about self-governance and the rights of people who established habitat in new lands. Before attending the Congress in Philadelphia, he codified these thoughts in an article called A Summary View of the Rights of British America. This paper he sent on ahead of him. He fell ill on the road and was delayed for several days. By the time he arrived, his paper had been published as a pamphlet and sent throughout the colonies and on to England where Edmund Burke, sympathetic to the colonial condition, had it reprinted and circulated widely. In 1776, Jefferson, then a member of the committee to draft a Declaration of Independence, was chosen by the committee to write the draft. This he did, with some minor corrections from John Adams and an embellishment from Franklin. The document was offered to the Congress on the first day of July. The Congress modified it somewhat, abbreviating certain wording and removing points that were outside of general agreement. The Declaration of Independence was adopted on the 4th of July. Jefferson returned to his home not long afterward. His wife and two of his children were very ill. He was tired of being remote from his home, and he was anxious about the development of a new government for his native state. In June of 1779, he succeeded Patrick Henry as governor of Virginia. The nation was still at war, and the southern colonies were under heavy attack. Jefferson's governorship was clouded with hesitation. He himself concluded that the state would be better served by a military man. He declined re-election after his first term and was succeeded by Governor Nelson of Yorktown. I'm sorry, General Nelson of Yorktown. In 1781, he retired to Monticello, the estate he inherited to write, work on improved agriculture, and attend his wife. It was during this time that he wrote Notes on the State of Virginia, a work he never completed. Martha Jefferson died in September of 1782. This event threw Jefferson into a depression that, according to his eldest daughter, he might never have recovered from, except that Washington called on him in November of 1782 to again serve his country as minister plenipotentiary, plenipotentiary to negotiate peace with Great Britain. He accepted the post, however. It was aborted when the peace was secured before he could sail from Philadelphia. In 1784, Jefferson went to France as an associate diplomat with Franklin and Adams. It was in that year that wrote an article establishing the standard weights, measures, and currency units for the United States. He succeeded Franklin as Minister to France the following year. When he returned home in 1879, he joined the Continental Congress for a while and, when, and was then appointed Secretary of State under George Washington. This placed him in a very difficult position. 
The character of the executive was being established in the first few terms. Jefferson and many others were critical of the form it was taking under the first Federalist administration. Jefferson was sharply at odds with fellow cabinet members John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, both of whom he found to be too authoritarian and too quick to assume overwhelming power for the Republican Party. No, for the part of the executive. For the part of the executive. He resigned from the cabinet in 1793 and formed the Democratic Democrat-Republican Party. There we go. There's the longer name. Yep. Uh, he, heated, comp- heated competition continued. Johnson ran for president in seven. Johnson. Heated competition continued. Jefferson ran for president in 1796 and lost to John Adams. And most uncomfortably, this made him vice president under a man whom he could no longer abide. After a single meeting on the street, the two never communicated directly during the whole administration. Jefferson again ran for the presidency in 1801, and this time he won. He served for two terms and did ultimate did ultimately play a deciding role in forming the character of the American presidency. The Twelfth Amendment to the Constitution changed the manner in which the vice president was selected, as to prevent arch enemies from occupying the first and second positions of the executive. Jefferson also found the State of the Union address to be too magister, magisterial when de- delivered in person. He performed one and afterwards delivered them as required by the Constitution only in writing. He also undertook the Louisiana Purchase, extending the boundaries of the country and establishing the doctrine of manifest destiny. Thomas Jefferson retired from office in 1808. He continued the private portion of his life's work and sometime later re-engaged his dearest and longest friend, James Madison, in the work of establishing the University of Virginia. In 1815, one of his projects, a Library of Congress, finally bore fruit when he sold his own personal library to the Congress as a basis for the collection. Shortly before his death in 1826, Jefferson told Madison that he wished to be remembered for two things only, as the author of the Declaration of Independence and as the founder of the University of Virginia. Jefferson died on the 4th of July as the nation celebrated the 50th anniversary of his splendid declaration. Okay, now, Chad, you've seen my collection of books, right? Yes. Uh, I've got a few. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I've I've been to the Library of Congress. Okay. I've seen Jefferson's donation. I was going to, when you said you've been there, so they have it, like, set aside? It's, yes, it, it's set aside. It's its own display. It's I'm sure you can't glass. touch it. No, you cannot touch it. And uh, I overheard a, a lot of people talking as I was walking through and a few people were were saying well so what he's only got like three four hundred books here what's the in, big in, deal in 17 or 1826 right and i mentioned it to a couple of people what a lot of people don't realize is almost all of those books were handwritten yeah and there's that either too. either he would have copied them himself or paid to have somebody copy them and it wasn't like you could call up Amazon and have them ship it to you. Right. Getting a copy of a book took months, sometimes years. And it was, um, a lot of people would say at the time that it was an indulgence. Mm -hmm. And granted, pretty much only the, the wealthy and connected could afford any kind of library. Right. But almost all of the books would have been written on law or philosophy 
or natural history, natural science. Um, you mentioned that he was an agronomist. He he was very interested in farming and, and not just far, subsistence farming, but in developing new ways to farm, new techniques, crossbreeding plants to produce a hardier strain, things like that. Well, you know, he was interested in the science behind it. Well, and, and America was an agricultural society at that time. Um, there's arguments now that we are no longer an agricultural society because we make more money as a country outside of farming than we do in farming. Right. Even though, I mean, I don't know about the rest of the country, but here we still have a lot of farms. Yes. <laughs> you know, and uh, so it, it's one of those things where you're right. You know, it probably was an indulgence. And he probably, from what I know of reading about him and such, he probably would have agreed with you that it was an indulgence. But and on that same token, he then uh, sold those that library to start the collection. Now, yeah, I couldn't find anywhere what how much he sold it for, but he basically said, "Here is 400 books or 300 books. Start this thing that I talked about." And I mean, look at it today. Exactly. It's it's in a huge building, several stories, and they have. I think isn't there goal to own every book that's ever been printed? I'm not sure about that. I do know that there's one organization that is trying to um, store away a hard copy of every book. So, but I I don't believe it's actually government connected. I think it's okay. a private think tank. Okay, because I I mean, but they have so many books. Um, yes. And if and you want newspapers. Yes. And if you want to see, and I don't think they actually shot in the uh, in the in the, in the library. Um, you're thinking National Treasure Yeah, too? Yeah, where they, they show you the Library of Congress. Right. Now, they may have shot in there. Um, I'm sure a lot of the stuff where they were breaking things in the Library of Congress was not in the Library right. of Congress, but they may have done some wide shots. But, I mean, just in that small section of the library they showed you, there's just so much, you know, uh, that it was just one of those things. Now, you know, Thomas Jefferson did a lot for this country. He was the third president. Uh, he expanded our borders by... Uh, hundreds of thousands of square miles, uh, basically to uh, modern-day Montana in the north and then all the way down to Louisiana and kind of along the, the Mississippi River. Um, but he wasn't a perfect man. No. Uh, you know, he was he was unfaithful to his wife um, and, and things such as that. I mean, and I think if no matter how great the character is, you can look back at him and go, well, they weren't perfect. And they're not, you know. You and I sitting here, I know I'm not perfect. Right. You know, I, I consider myself a decent person, but I'm not perfect by any means. So it's just one of those things, I, you know, and we're trying to put a good spin on this because it is, you know, in a few days, it's going to be the, the 4th of July, the, the birth of our country. It's going to be 200. She's going to be 241 years old, which is the longest surviving democracy they always say even though we're not technically a democracy we're a republic or a democratic republic right um but that's the closest thing you can get to a true democracy that still somehow manages to not implode upon itself correct so all right so what do you got next well my next is also from massachusetts all call right. me call me biased, call me partisan. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, to be fair, my next one's from Massachusetts too. So All right. Well, they do call Boston the hub. And and most Bostonians do seem to think that the revolution did revolve around them. Well, so 
But anyways, my second one is John Adams' cousin, second cousin technically, Samuel Adams. All right, we're talking beer. <laughs> well, while he was a brewer, he wasn't a very successful one. So, Have you ever tasted Sam Adams? I love Sam Adams. Back I then, actually I do too. I, I actually like I like Sam Adams Lager. They do some other stuff that I'm just not a big fan of, but just the plain old Lager. Right. I like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, let's let's talk about the man and not his beer. Okay. So Samuel Adams was born in September of 1722, so he was older than John. Okay. And he died in October of 1803, so he died earlier as well. Um, he started off as a businessman, was not successful. Then he became a tax collector, was not successful. Maybe that's why he had the beer, because when he'd go to collect the taxes from people, they'd be like, oh, you're the tax collector. I don't want to see you. And he said, but I have a beer. Okay, maybe you're not so bad. How can you be bad at collecting taxes? I don't know. Maybe he felt sorry for the people he was collecting taxes from and didn't collect them. I suppose, and I suppose tax... Well, and he would have been collecting under the British rule, too, right. because when America first started, there were no taxes, per se, or no income taxes. Right. The What he would have been collecting would have been the impounds and the various taxes imposed by the British on all of the stuff that was either shipped into or out of America, and what a lot of people considered the, the more onerous taxes were when things were grown or harvested or manufactured in America and sold to Americans, the British still charge a tax on them. <laughs> and probably an import tax. <laughs> yes. In fact, there was a while where basically if you if I wanted to sell something to my neighbor, mm-hmm. I had to ship it to London on a British vessel, pay for the shipping and the shipping tax. Then I'd have to pay someone in London to put it on a different boat coming back to Boston pay the taxes on that, and then pay the import tax when it got to Boston Harbor. And then I could sell it to my neighbor. Wow. Yeah. They literally got you coming and going. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So um, after he failed in business and as a tax collector, uh, like his cousin did and many other members of their family did, he went into politics. In 1768, he wrote um, something that was called the Massachusetts Circular Letter. It called for colonial non-cooperation. And um, actually, I misspoke earlier when I mentioned that the um, Boston Tea Party led to the occupation. It wasn't the Boston Tea Party. It was the Circular Letter that led to the um, occupation of Boston by British soldiers. Um, which led to the Boston Massacre, which we mentioned, which took place in 1770, not okay. 1773. So All right. My apologies. I had my notes jumbled. So uh, after the occupation, a lot of the normal methods of communication were curtailed. So Adams and his colleagues created almost a a minor league espionage network to... Um, deliver information surreptitiously among the conspirators mm-hmm. to keep it away from the British government and soldiers. Yeah, Washington spies. Mm-hmm. So, in 1773, he was one of the leaders of the Boston Tea Party, which everybody has heard of. Let me think about that one. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Okay. All right. Um, he also helped draft the Articles of Confederation. Okay. Um, after, um, I don't know if he tired of national politics or if he wanted to go back home like Jefferson did, uh, he returned to Boston and was actually elected governor of Massachusetts. He succeeded. He did in politics. <laughs> so um, he, like his cousin and like me, attended Boston Latin School. Like his cousin and unlike me, he then went to Harvard. That's so, right. You came to Wisconsin and went to a good college. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Although, oddly enough, the college I attended is often referred to as the Harvard of the Midwest. You know, I had honestly never heard of Ripon College until I met you. So really? I, yeah, I just never had. Okay. Yes. Uh, for those of you who know, Ripon College is a small liberal arts college, a student body between 800 and 1,000 in Ripon, Wisconsin, uh, more famous for being the location of the first Maytag factory. Uh, so you can credit the mass production of the washing machine to Ripon, and it's home of Ripon Foods, which manufactures Ripon Good Cookies and is also one of the primary manufacturers of Keebler cookies. Now, ripping good cookies, I've heard of. Yes. At the factory store, you can buy a five-pound bag of factory reject cookies for pennies on the dollar. Now, what makes a cookie reject? Usually, if it's, like, say you have a sandwich cookie that has yep. a design on it. Maybe one side of the cookie is blank. So it didn't get stamped properly. Okay. Or oftentimes you have quality control where if you have a broken cookie, they won't pack it. So they just take all these, throw them in a big old bag and be like, here's five bucks. Pretty much, yes. So when are we going to Ripon? <laughs> <laughs> so. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, as I mentioned with John Adams, John Adams had the, the issue of defending the British soldiers during the Boston Massacre, which was somewhat unpopular. Samuel Adams has, over the centuries, seen his fortunes rise and fall, his reputation. Um, in the 19th century, he was widely praised by historians and academics as being a revolutionary visionary, where they, they looked back at his early writings and even his failure as a tax collector as evidence that he was one of the true leaders of the revolutionary spirit and had started laying the foundation for the Declaration of Independence and America's independence from England as much as a decade and a half before anybody else. In the early 20th century, however, a lot of scholars and historians took a more negative and cynical view of him, arguing that his participation in the Boston Tea Party, and in fact his reputation as one of the leaders of the Boston Tea Party, and his um, rhetoric inciting violence against the British and condemning the soldiers during the Boston Massacre, condemning his cousin for defending them, was akin to today's propaganda and being a rabble-rouser and inciting mob violence. Okay. So today, most scholars and historians say both of those views are a little extreme. The historical record that we're able to verify says, yes, he was part of the revolution. Yes, he was an influential speaker and writer. 
yes, much of what he did in the small scale might be considered inciting mob violence or might be considered less than desirable or not in line with what, say, his cousin or George Washington or Thomas Jefferson were looking to do. But they say that the early 20th century viewpoint is a little extreme. Okay. And that the 19th century viewpoint needs to take off its rose-colored glasses. So fair enough. So it's it's somewhere in the middle. It's some the, the truth is there. Uh, probably in both versions, the truth is there. It's just uh, they they went and did a uh, Benjamin Franklin to it and kind of made it a little bigger than what it really was. Yes. <laughs> All right. What else you got, Adam? Anything? Uh, nope. That's about it. All so. right. I will jump into my next one and. Where you went for the hometown favorites, I went for probably the two biggest names that signed. Uh, my next one is John Hancock. He Literally was, the biggest name. Yes, and I and I talk <laughs> about that. He is a delegate from Massachusetts, and the signature of John Hancock on the Declaration of Independence is the most flamboyant and easily easily recognizable of all. It is perhaps no surprise that the story of his part in the Revolution is in, equally engaging. Few figures were more well-known or more popular than John Hancock. He played an instrumental role, sometimes by accidents and other times by design, in coaxing the American Revolution into being. Born in Braintree, Massachusetts in 1737, he was orphaned as a child and adopted by a wealthy merchant uncle who was childless. Hancock attended Harvard College, as Scott said, unlike him, or me for that matter, uh, for a business education and graduated at the age of 17. He apprenticed to his uncle as a clerk and proved so honest and capable that in 1760, he was sent on a business mission to England. There he witnessed the coronation of George III and engaged some of the leading businessmen of London. In 1763, his uncle died and John Hancock inherited what was said to be the greatest body of wealth in New England. This placed him in a society of men who consisted mainly of loyalists, suspected by the working population because of their great affluence and social power. Hancock, however, soon became very involved in revolutionary politics, and his sentiments were, early on and clearly, for independence from Great Britain. He was in company with the Adamses and other prominent leaders in the Republican, Republican movement in New England. He was elected to the Boston Assembly in 1766 and was a member of the Stamp Act Congress. In 1768, his sloop Liberty was impounded by customs official at Boston Harbor on a charge of running contraband goods. A large group of private citizens stormed the customs post, burned the government boat, and beat the officers, causing them to seek refuge on a ship offshore. Soon afterwards, Hancock abetted the Boston Tea Party. The following year, he delivered a public address to a large crowd in Boston, commemorating the Boston Massacre. In 1774, he was elected to the Provisional Congress of Massachusetts, and simultaneously to the Continental Congress. When Peyton Randolph resigned in 1776, Hancock assumed the position of president. He retired in 1777 due to problems with gout, but continued public service in his native state by participating in the formation of its constitution. He was then elected to the governorship of the state, where he served for five years, declined re-election, and was again elected in 1787. He served in that office until his death in 1793. The dignity and character of John Hancock, celebrated by friend and enemy alike, did not suffer for his love of public attention. 
He was a populist in every sense, who held great confidence in the ability of the common man. He also displayed a pronounced contempt for unreasoned authority. A decree had been delivered from England in early 1776, offering a large reward for the capture of several leading figures. Hancock was one of them. The story, entirely unfounded, is that on signing the declaration, Hancock commented, The British ministry can read that name without spectacles. Let them double their reward. An alternate story, also unfounded, has him saying, There, I guess King George will be able to read that. He was the first to sign, and he did so in an entirely blank space. So, he was a man... I mean, when you read about this guy, he was very flamboyant. He was very outgoing. Yes. He was not timid or shy in any way. Nope. Um, I didn't know until I had started doing this that the things that he supposedly said upon signing were not true. You know, because we're taught you're taught that in grade school. Oh yeah. Well, it makes a great story, and kids remember it. Right. And you know, it's something I remembered up until you know a few days ago when I really started doing the research on this and went. Really? He he didn't say that. No. Nope. You know, but they, they teach it in such a way, and, you know, and I'm sure the teacher knows that when they're teaching it, it's not real. But, you know, like you said, it's a good story. People remember. They remember John Hancock. You know, they remember uh, something about the Declaration of Independence, even if they don't remember it per se. Right. So. Well, and how for how long has there been the expression... Put your John Hancock on the line. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. sign. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. So now we're gonna we're gonna delve off a little bit from people who actually signed to people that were somehow involved with, but not necessarily a signer of the Declaration of Independence. So why don't you take it away, Scott? Tell us about your guy. All right. Well, first, I have something that I want to quote. Okay. That all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring, possessing property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Okay. Sounds a lot like the Declaration of Independence, doesn't it? It does. It's actually from Virginia's Declaration of Rights. Okay. And it's written by my non-signer, George Mason. All right. I've heard the name. I don't know a lot about the gentleman, but... Mm -hmm. Fill us in. All right. So uh, first, I have to give a shout out to the Bathroom Readers Institute in Oregon, uh, producers of Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. I ran across this little story in their 17th edition, the slightly irregular Bathroom Reader, and it stuck with me. Um, it's called America's Forgotten Founding Father. And... Um, there is a, a quote at the start of it that says that the name of George Mason should be acclaimed throughout the Republic whose birth pangs he shared and indeed throughout the free world will be agreed, I believe, by all American historians. And it's one of those things that when you read the research that they did and you find out about it, and then you start to put the pieces together and you say, yeah, that, that sounds familiar. Or, yeah, that's right. He did that? And that's what this guy is. Now, there is uh, George Mason University, which is, um, which bears his name. There's Mason um, Jars. Yes. I don't know if he's involved with that. Okay. And I, I don't know if he was a Mason. Gotcha. Although, given that most of our founding fathers were, I'm guessing it's a pretty good bet that he was. 
Um, so, but he was a Virginian, like Thomas Jefferson. Um, he was born in 1725. Uh, his father died when he was 10, and he was raised by his mother and his uncle, who was a prominent lawyer. Okay. And what that gave George the opportunity to do was read. His uncle, the lawyer, had an extensive library. See how we keep coming back to libraries? <laughs> Learned and, men. Learned yes. men. And um, it, apparently his uncle's private library had more than 1,500 volumes in it. Huge. That's, yeah, it's, even um, by even by your standards, that's a big library. Yes. And most of them were on history and the law. So uh, Mason had pretty much, uh, unlike John and Samuel Adams and John Hancock and Jefferson, as you talked about, Mason had no formal education. Okay. But his education was sitting in that library and reading. And um, in reading all of those books, he came up with his own ideas about government and um, how people should be governed and what the purpose of the national government and the state government and the local government should be and what we now call uh, the separation of powers owes a lot of it and even the um, three branches of government in the constitution was largely his idea okay and uh, jefferson borrowed it so um, and in fact there's a, there's a great quote here from jefferson and it says in giving this account of the laws of which I was myself the mover and draftsman, I by no means mean to claim to myself the merit of obtaining their passage. I had many strenuous coadjutors in debate, and one most steadfast, able, and zealous. This was George Mason, a man of the first order of wisdom among those who acted on the theater of the revolution, of expansive mind, profound judgment, cogent in argument, learned in the lore of our former constitution, and earnest for the Republican change on democratic principles. So Thomas Jefferson made that statement in 1821. Okay. Now, Mason was elected to the Continental Congress from Virginia and to the Constitutional Convention. But as the Constitution was taking shape, he grew increasingly concerned with the amount of power that was being given to the executive branch in specific and overall the power being centralized in the federal government one of the things that he was really concerned about was actually the supreme court really yes he was not a fan of the way that the supreme court was being set as the supreme law of the land and the the, the final stop in the appeals process because what he was concerned about was that pretty much only the wealthy would be able to take a case that far. And so the Supreme Court gave a means for the wealthy to oppress the poor because the poor wouldn't be able to push a case that far. So then I, I guess where does, does, do you have any information on where he wanted that decision-making body to be? Well, he agreed Or did he not there, want it to go beyond the state? Is that kind of... Well, no, he, he agreed that there needed to be a Supreme Court. But the level of power that was being, and it was endemic to all three branches of government. Um, Congress had too much power, the executive branch had too much power, and the Supreme Court had too much power. 
And one of the things that he strongly pushed for and that the lack of them led to his quitting the Constitutional Convention and not being part of it anymore was the lack of protection for the individual. Okay. And um, yeah, so he said, uh, the working constitution contained no bill of rights for individuals. This was the worst problem in his view. The Supreme Court was given too much power over state judiciaries, enabling the rich to oppress and ruin the poor. The president had excessive pardoning powers, which may be sometimes exercised to screen from punishment those whom he had secretly instigated to commit the crime and thereby prevent a discovery of his own guilt. So he was concerned that the president would be able to convince people to commit crimes on his behalf, promising them a pardon if they got caught. Okay. So, and I, I think we saw a little bit of that with Nixon and Watergate. Oh, yeah, I so, think so. Um, and he was opposed to slavery. He didn't like that the Constitution allowed for the continuation of importation of slaves. Um, and he said the proposed Constitution threatened to produce a monarchy or a corrupt, tyrannical aristocracy. So I bet you might find a lot of people today who would agree with that position. <laughs> <laughs> well, even at the time, I mean, you look at presidents like Washington, who they 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 literally said, do you want to be King George? And he's like, no, that's the whole point. You know, we could have had a completely different set of government if there weren't people like Mason yep. and like Washington and, and I'm sure several other people. But, you know, I mean, think of how humble a man has to be that they come up to you and they go like, Scott, you can be king. And for you to go, you know, that's just what we got done dealing with. It's not what mm -hmm. we were trying to do. Yeah. We know? wanted to get away from the monarchy. We wanted to get away from absolute power. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, so he, um, was not among the signers of the constitution, even though most people agree that, um, his part in writing the Virginia constitution and the declaration of rights led to Jefferson's declaration of independence. Um, he was a mentor to James Madison, who was one of the writers of the constitution as well. And, um, they, it's said that his refusal to support the Constitution cost him his friendship with George Washington. Oh, really? So okay, but um, so but even after it was ratified, Mason still continued to say it's not right. We need to fix it. And as more people actually got to read the fine print, more people started to agree with him. And so. Um, a lot of the states held off on ratifying the Constitution until they wrangled the concession that the first thing the new Congress was going to do was pass a Bill of Rights, which became the first ten amendments to the Constitution, which we now call the Bill of Rights. Right. And um, the first, second, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth amendments were all borrowed from Mason's Virginia Constitution, a lot of them almost verbatim. Well, I, I guess I can see that. I mean, mm -hmm. looking at the Bill of Rights, if they were almost verbatim than what they had in Virginia, for the most part, I'd say he probably he had them down pretty well. Yes. 
So, and he, he later wrote, I have received much satisfaction from amendments to the federal constitution that have lately passed. With two or three further amendments, I could cheerfully put my hand and heart to the new government. And in 1795, the 11th amendment was passed, limiting the power of the Supreme Court over the states, which was another one of his pushes. Right, yeah. So, but if you think about it, First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, freedom from establishment of a state religion. Right. Second Amendment, right to bear arms. Fourth Amendment, protection from unreasonable search and seizure. Fifth Amendment, protection against self-incrimination. I mean, they, these are the, I mean, the Bill of Rights in its entirety, but especially the, the first five. Right. Are pretty much the cornerstone of the protections that are supposed to be in place in the American legal system and in the American government. Yeah, so, it's exactly. And and if he hadn't been such a, a staunch and many said stubborn arguer about them, we might not have had them. Yeah, and, and as great as the Declaration of Independence is, it really didn't give anybody any freedoms or rights and without those we would be a completely different country today correct so no absolutely yeah but um so his place as the um, father of the bill of rights and one of the most important founding fathers is unquestioned in 2002 he was finally recognized by the nation he helped found when the george mason national memorial was formally dedicated near the thomas jefferson memorial in washington dc Awesome. Yep. So he's he finally got the recognition that he was due. Although, to be fair, the people that he worked with at the time were unhesitant in acknowledging his contribution. Right. They didn't always like the fact that he kept pushing his agenda and saying, right. you're doing it wrong. But But it sounds like he had a pretty good idea of you know, what he wanted or what he thought was right. And in the end, it seems that everybody agreed with him. Yes. So, all right. So my final one is Robert R. Livingston. And as I was doing this, my wife goes, Dr. Livingston. And I said, no, <laughs> different Livingston. Yes. So Robert, Robert Livingston. And no, I didn't stutter. His name was Robert, Robert Livingston was an American lawyer, politician, diplomat from New York, and the founding father of the United States. He was known as the Chancellor after the high New York State legal office he held for 25 years. He was a member of the Committee of Five that drafted the Declaration of Independence, along with Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Roger Sherman. Livingston was appointed Recorder of New York City in October 1773, but soon identified himself with the anti-colonial Whig Party and was replaced a few months later with John Watts, Jr. He was a member of the Committee of Five that drafted the Declaration of Independence, although he was recalled by his state before he could sign the final version of the document. However, he sent his cousin, Philip Livingston, to sign the document in his place. Uh, another cousin, William Livingston, was a signer of the United States Constitution. In 1777 to 1801, Livingston was the first Chancellor of New York, then the highest judicial officer in the state. He became universally known as the Chancellor, retaining the title as a nickname even after he left the office. Livingston was also U.S. Secretary of Foreign Affairs from 1781 to 83 under the Articles of Confederation. 
1789, as Chancellor of New York, Livingston administered the presidential oath of office to George Washington at Federal Hall in New York City, then the capital of the United States. Also in 1789, Livingston joined the Jeffersonian Republicans, later known as the Democratic Republicans, in opposition to his former colleagues John Jay and Alexander Hamilton, who had founded the Federalist. He formed an uneasy alliance with his previous rival, George Clinton, Along with Aaron Burr, then a political newcomer, he opposed the Jay Treaty and other Federalist uh, initiatives. Wow, they had Parliament Funkadelic all the way back then? I know! I, I read that and I was like, hey, groovy. Yeah. It's groovy, groovy. Anyway, uh, in 1798, Livingston ran for governor of New York on the Democratic-Republican ticket, but was defeated by incumbent Governor John Jay. As U.S. Minister to France from 1801 to 1804, Livingston negotiated the Louisiana Purchase. After the signing of the Louisiana Purchase Agreement in 1803, Livingston made the memorable statement, We have long, we have lived long, but this is the noblest work of our whole lives. The United States take rank this day among the first powers of the world. During his time as a U.S. Minister to France, Livingston met Robert Fulton, whom he developed the first viable steamboat, the North River Steamboat, whose home port was at the Livingston family home in Clearmont Manor in the town of Clearmont, New York. On her maiden voyage, she left New York City with him as a passenger, stopped briefly at Clearmont Manor, and continued on to Albany up the Hudson River, completing in just under 60 hours a journey which had previously taken nearly a week by sloop. In 1811, Fullerton and Livingston became members of the Erie Canal Commission. Livingston was a Freemason, and in 1784, he was appointed the first Grand Master of the Grand, Grand Lodge of New York, retaining this title until 1801. The Grand Lodge's library in Manhattan bears his name. The Bible Livingston, who used to administer the oath of office to President Washington, is owned by St. John's Lodge No. 1, and is still used today when the Grand Master is sworn in, and by request when a President of the United States is sworn in. After his death, Livingston was buried in St. James Episcopal Churchyard in Hyde Park, New York. So, again, someone who's very instrumental in the beginning of this country, but due to his uh, his devotion to his state, was not there to sign. Correct. So, I mean, this guy, I mean, just reading through what, what he did, is it's just amazing. So, at this point, we're going to do something a little different I'm going to give you all the information I normally give you at the end of the episode, but then Scott and I would like you to listen to that and then continue to listen as we got something special for you at the end. So if you want to reach out to us and let us know what you think of this episode or any other episode that we've done so far, you can do that. You can send us an email at wanttohearsomethinginteresting at gmail.com, or you can find us um, on Facebook either at POI Network or at want to hear something interesting podcast and you can leave us a message there as well uh, we thank you for listening and now stay tuned in congress july 4 1776 the unanimous declaration of the 13 united states of america when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, 
that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its power in such form, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established shall not be charged, or shall not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms of which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object evinces, a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for the future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies. And such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to the candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records, for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his members' measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly, for posing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time, after such dissolutions, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convolutions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the condition of a new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us, in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretend legislation, for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, 
or protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. For cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefit of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so that as to render it at once an example and fit instruments for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to rule the, to be the ruler of free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by the legislature to extend an unwarranted jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appeared, appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voices of justice and of our consanguinity, we must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor.
You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.